0: Good evening church. It's good to see each of you here tonight. I want to encourage you if you've not already done so to turn to the little book of Haggai in the Old Testament. Tonight we are going to conclude our study of this little book and we're going to be looking at Haggai and the last three verses. Now if you've not had to look that that book up just go to the end of the Old Testament and it's the third book from the end. End of the Old Testament third book from the end and then we're going to look at the last three verses of that little book. When we began this study, we called this series, Waking Up to God. And it's a story of revival. And you'll recall, I hope, if you've been with us in these studies, that Haggai was a prophet who was part of a group of people who returned from exile. The people of God who had been established with a king, and that kingdom had divided and had become increasingly disloyal to God. They worshiped idols, and as a consequence of that, God allowed them to be conquered by their enemies and carried off into captivity. Well, they were also given promises that once in captivity, they would be restored, and so they were released to come back, and part of their assignment was to rebuild the temple of God. And they laid the initial foundation, and then because of their enemies, because of harassment, because of fear, and then later because of excuses, that foundation of the new temple lay barren for 16 years. And so the people of God were not doing what God had sent them back home to do. And Haggai was a prophet, and God through him spoke to that generation they said and he confronted them with their disobedience and to their credit instead of throwing rocks at Haggai or stringing him up they actually listened to him there was a supernatural effectiveness to Haggai's preaching and teaching and the leadership and the people of God repented and said we'll do it and they began to gather the materials and the resources to rebuild the temple. And so these two little chapters of this prophet Haggai, who was probably an older man when he preached, cover five messages over the space of just a few months that he, he preached. This, that we're looking at tonight, is the second of those of two messages preached on the same day. So messages four and five came in December 520 B.C., and they were preached on the same day. And so this is the final message, final message word we get from Haggai we don't hear about Haggai again so um, I want to read Haggai chapter 2 and I'm reading verses 20, 21, 22 and 23 and again the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month saying speak to Zerubbabel governor of Judah saying now the other message earlier in the day had been addressed to the priests. We saw that the last time we studied, a couple weeks ago. But this one's addressed to Zerubbabel, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. The title of this evening's message is Revival, Restoring People to the Life God Intended for Them. Now, as I mentioned already, we, uh, the fourth message had been given earlier that day, on the very same day, and it was given to the priests and the religious leaders. And you'll remember that it was very tempting for them to go back and do religion the way they used to do religion. And there was this great warning that the need of the people was not to be religious. The need of the people was to be continually turning to God, continually repentant. And the secret of ongoing, continuous revival is this repenting or turning To God and we saw that last time but tonight is different this is a message to Zerubbabel the people are being restored the priesthood is being corrected and strengthened the temple is being rebuilt but Zerubbabel where does he stand he is a direct descendant of King David there were certain promises given to King David and it had to cross Zerubbabel's mind do these promises still apply is God going to keep his word to David through my generation? And as you'll see why, that was a legitimate question because they had every reason to believe that they had been cut off from those promises and that they were still not effective. And we'll, we'll see that in just a moment. So this was a word that's but this was a word that all the people would have been vitally interested in. And so let me see if I can explain it in this way. In the Old Testament, you have the story that, that precedes the coming of Jesus in the New Testament. It begins in the Garden of Eden, and we see where life as God intended was free from sin, free from death, free from destruction, and, and you had these two individuals, man and woman, placed into an ideal situation, and it was life as God intended. And what's significant about that is that life as God intended did not mean you did whatever you wanted to do. Life as God intended meant you were dependent on the Father for direction and guidance. It wasn't that Adam and Eve would make up their mind and do their own thing. God gave them a command. And they lived by that word and by his direction. And so you know the story. They did sin. And this rulership of the earth, the over the earth was lost. And the devil picked it up. Now we know that because when Jesus was tempted, one of the temptations was that if Jesus would fall down and worship the devil, he said, I will give you the kingdoms of the earth. And that could not have been a temptation unless it was a real offer. And so that means the devil had taken that dominion that belonged to humanity for himself. And he still rules over the world. Jesus Christ, three times referred to him as the ruler of this world. Now, it doesn't belong to him, but he rules over this world. And one day, that's going to come to an end. But right now, that's the scenario that we live in. 1 John five nineteen says, we know that we are born of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And so what we see in the world today is not life as God intended. We see brokenness. We see sin. We see sickness. We see the fingerprints of satan all over humanity and so one of the great mistakes we make when we try to struggle with suffering and pain is we begin to lay it at god's feet and we say if god is good and god is powerful why is there so much suffering in the world but what we forget is that this is not the way god intended it to be we are experiencing the consequences of untold generations of people who have sinned and rebelled against god and that's the world you and i live in And so Jesus comes, it says in Galatians 1-4, to rescue us from this present evil age. That there is an entrance of God into this unholy environment, and when he comes, he says the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. And so on, on one hand, in the Gospel of John three times, Jesus says the ruler of this world is Satan, but When Jesus came, the rulership of God entered into our time and space. Now, we see hints of this in the Old Testament. Uh, We see it in the book of Exodus when they were rejoicing at the destruction of Pharaoh's armies on the banks of the Red Sea. In the song that they sang, uh, one of the lyrics was, Our God reigns. And it's the first reference to the kingship or the kingly rule of God. And, and this conception of God ruling continues throughout the development of the Old Testament. When God entered in and delivered the people of Israel from Egypt, it was not just delivering them from a political power, it was delivering them also from a, political, a spiritual power. And it says, I think it's in Exodus 12, that God judged the gods of Egypt on the night of the Passover. And so it wasn't just Pharaoh involved. It was the demonic beings animating their worship. And so God overruled them. God defeated them because he is a king and he is Lord. When we come to the period of the kings through David, there was a covenant made, a promise, that there would always be descendants on his throne and that from his lineage there would come a Messiah, one who would usher in the rule of God, But until that time, through anointed, adopted rulers, God intended that his rule, his kingly rule, would come through those anointed kings and would demonstrate what life is like when God is in charge. And this happened probably most clearly under the reign of Solomon. And I could take you tonight to passages like 1 Kings 4 where it describes not only the wealth and the privilege and the power that he had, but all the enemies were subdued. And every individual in his kingdom received justice. Every individual in his kingdom was prosperous. Every individual in his kingdom had what they needed. Each man sat under his own fig tree. Uh, Each of them had wives and they had 20 children apiece or something like that. Whatever they defined prosperity as, that's what they had. And they called it a time of shalom or peace. And that word shalom in Hebrew is not just the absence of, of fighting and hostility. It refers to wholeness. And life was whole as God expressed his wisdom and his power and his might through David and then his son Solomon. And so there was this, this image in the minds of the people of God that, that at its zenith under King Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was reflecting something of what life would be like when God would come and rule. And in fact, we see that in the prophets as the prophets begin to preach and teach the major prophets and the minor prophets they begin expressing yes they the people of god have sinned yes they're going into exile yes trouble is coming but there's another day coming and in this other day god is going to come and he's going to usher in his kingdom and all the enemies will be defeated and god's going to usher in a kingdom greater than the kingdom of solomon and his anointed one which is what messiah or christ means is going to usher in that kingdom and so As you read the prophets, including the prophet Haggai, watch for that. Watch for that promise of a coming kingdom. Watch for that promise that all the enemies are going to be subdued. Watch for that promise that everything lost in the garden and more is going to be restored to the people of God when God is in charge and his kingdom is being fully expressed. When Jesus came, when John the Baptist came, Their message was, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Right now, right here. And boy, when those people heard that, don't you know their hearts leaped. All the ages have waited for this. Now what we have longed for, what our souls have ached for, is coming through this savior Jesus Christ but they didn't understand a lot of things he said if you read carefully the kingdom parables when he said the kingdom of heaven is like he began explaining some mysteries of the kingdom of God to them that in some way that they didn't fully understand that in the mercy of God And in the love of God, the kingdom of God had had indeed arrived, but was not yet being fully expressed. That God in his patience was not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That yes, the kingdom of God dwells in every heart that trusts Jesus. Yes, the kingdom of God is expressed sometimes when we pray, and he enters our time and circumstances and puts things back the way he intended it to be. And we see it as healing. We see it as answered prayer. We see it in a thousand different ways. But the kingdom is not fully here yet. So when we read Haggai, and when we read the prophets, we read a lot of discussion about the exile or the coming judgment on the nation and then their exile and their return. We read a lot about that, but almost every single prophet makes some reference to the day of the Lord. And with that day of the Lord, God is going to restore the world to what he intended it to be. In fact, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. In Isaiah 11, he he describes it this way. He says, on my holy mountain there'll be no harm. The lion will lie down with the lamb. The lion will not eat the lamb. The child will play by a snake's hole and thrust his hand in there and won't be bitten. It'll just be a different kind of world when God's in charge. And so always remember that what God is going to do in the future is restore everything the way he intended it to be. But guess what he wants to do in your heart guess what he wants to do in your life? He wants to do a work in you to restore you more and more every day, more and more to the life God intended for you to have. Now we know that won't be perfectly accomplished on this side of heaven. But I want you to know that's what God's doing with you. I want you to know that's that's what God wants to accomplish in your life. And as you read the New Testament, as you read the book of Acts, as you read those things, you can see that same thing going on in a church. That What God wants to do more and more is to move individuals and groups of his believers, groups of his followers, off of their agenda and onto his agenda, as we talked about this morning. I think one of the great examples of that that we find in church history and by the way church history is a wonderful illustration of this over and over again we see god awakening his people to to himself and over and over again those individuals coming more and more and more to a place of realizing what is it that is important to the heart of god and we want to be about that you see it in the reformation period of the 16th century you see it in the puritan era the 17th century you see it through the era of Methodism in the early 18th century, you see it through the nonstop revivals of the 19th century, you see over and over again God taking his people, bringing them to a place of intimacy with himself, and in that relationship, moving his people onto his agenda, to what he wants to accomplish. When the Reformation took place, the truth about God and his gospel broke out again. We are not saved by works. We are not saved by intermediaries between us and God. We are saved through a face-to-face encounter with the truth about who God is, the truth about our sin, our need for Jesus Christ and his cross and putting our faith in him, faith alone in Christ alone, to wash away our sins and to save us. Reformation did that. And then coming out of that Reformation, is that truth spread all over Europe and spread all over England? You had groups of individuals who, who had been taught their whole lives that the way that that you had a relationship with God is that you did everything you could to do the right thing and that somehow the stuff you did wrong would get forgiven and there was no full understanding of the cross. But as people got it. They went to a new place in their relationship with God. They went deep. And they wanted to know who God is. They wanted to walk with God. They wanted to make everything in their life exactly the way God wanted it to be. They got that nickname Puritans because of that. They wanted to purify their church. They wanted to purify their lives of anything that didn't please the Lord. And it was that reformation or restoration impulse. In the middle of Europe, in uh, the Czech, it's now called the Czech Republic, but right in the middle of that, there were a group of people living in Moravia and in that Czech area where the Czech people lived, used to be Czechoslovakia, in that area where the Czech people lived, you had all kinds of religious experimentation, all kinds of religious discussion, all kinds of efforts to understand the Bible and let's go do what God wants us to do with our life. Those individuals, as you can imagine, were persecuted. And and they escaped and they went, some of them went into Germany to a little town called Hernhut. And there was a count, a a, a powerful man named Count von Zinzendorf, and he began welcoming those people onto his estate and protected them. And as he welcomed one group, he'd welcome another group and then another group. And pretty soon, there were all these different groups who were saying that God wants us to do this. And another group would say, well, God wants us to be this way and this is what's really important. And another group would say, this is what we believe and this is really important. And they could not get along. Sound familiar? And so one time, and and what was really fascinating about von Zinzendorf is he he had a heart for God. Because he took these people in to begin with. And he went to them with tears in his eyes and he said, this isn't right. He said, can we just start praying together? Can we just start praying together? Let's seek the Lord together. They went through multiple rounds of prayer. This is the summer of 1727 they did the lord's supper together and made prayer a vital piece of it they had groups of people that said let's we're just going to pray together we're going to covenant to pray together every day for a week they had groups of men that would walk around at night and they would just pray through the community as people were going to bed and then there was a group of 24 men and women that covenanted together we're going to pray day and night nonstop." and they each took an hour every day And it started a nonstop prayer meeting that ultimately lasted 130 years. And revival broke out. And the very first thing that happened with this group of very ordinary, plain, relatively poor people is they sensed the heartbeat of God to go share the gospel around the world. Now this is 1727. This is so significant because it wasn't until 1790 that a Baptist shoemaker named William Carey started the London Missionary Society. And the birth of modern missions, as scholars would say, occurred. And and people began raising money and sending missionaries all over the world. And then in 1806, 1812, it happened here in North America. And you had Students praying under a haystack who caught the vision in the heart of God during a campus revival and they helped form the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions and they sent the missionaries all over the world and 40 different mission boards including our own international mission board can trace their roots to this prayer meeting on a campus in Massachusetts in 1806 but all of that would come later 1790s into the 1800s all that would come later this is 1727 This is over 70 years before the birth of modern missions. This is just a group of poor people in the middle, central Europe who are just drawing near to the heart of God, saying, we're just going to love the Lord, and we're going to do whatever He says. We're going to listen to Him. We're just going to love Him. We're going to love each other. They did it together in community. Within 14 years, they sent missionaries to four continents two missionaries went to Haiti and they wanted to witness to the slave populations of Haiti. The owners of the slaves wouldn't let them do it and so they sold themselves into slavery so they could share the gospel. I can tell you story after story of Moravian missionaries who, who spread all over the world just sharing the gospel. A man named John Wesley had been involved in doing some ministry work in georgia the colony of georgia and he was headed home and a storm came up and the boat was being rocked all over the place and everybody on board was scared to death seasoned sailors were scared to death and john wesley thought he was going to die and he didn't know if he was going to heaven or to hell and he was supposed to be a missionary on board that ship were two moravian missionaries and they were at peace And John could not understand why they could be at peace, and he went and talked to them. And they just shared with him, honestly. They said, well, does the Holy Spirit live inside of you? He's the one that gives peace. We belong to him. This boat's in his hands. We know it's going to be all right. Do you know the Lord? And he said, well, I'm a member of the church. You know, I'm part of the Anglican church. I I'm official, I've gone to school, I've got degrees, I've been ordained. They said, but do you know the Lord? Do you know the Lord? That's why we're at peace. Do you know him? In one generation, they changed their world. John Wesley impacted millions of people. Because when he got back to England, he got together with a group of other guys. One of them was a man named George Whitfield, and his brother Charles Wesley. And they began to pray together. And one night, God came into their meeting in the middle of the night. And that place was shaken. Their hearts were shaken. And now they knew the Lord. And whenever we draw near to the Lord like that, and he gets a hold of our heart, and we turn to him fully, he restores us. To his intent to life as he intended and that process continues and continues well past the grave revival is restoring people to the life God intended for them let's look at these verses let's see how he did this for Zerubbabel and uh, you'll need your bibles tonight uh, Haggai chapter 2 verse 20 and I'm just going to kind of talk through these verses and I've got some other verses to share with you so if you're taking notes you'll be able to jot those down, but in verse 20 it says, and again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. Now, I hope you remember from earlier in chapter 2, in fact, if you have your Bible open, if you go back to verse 6, we saw a similar word, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more it is a little while I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations. And they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory. And twice, Haggai refers to a shaking. Now, that's code language for what happens when God speaks. And there's a day coming when God's going to speak, and he's going to shake the world so hard that the only things that will survive that shaking are things that are eternal. And everything that exists in time is going to go away. It's going to fly apart. Peter writes of this, how very elements are going to fly apart, going to burn when that moment comes. And he says, tells Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. And, um, and this is the end of creation as we know it. This is part of the day of the Lord, and we'll see that in just a couple more verses. But this is part of that day of the Lord, the day, that day that's talked about in the New Testament and by the prophets in the Old Testament. There is a day coming where God will come and speak and shake creation, and only eternal things will survive. The writer of Hebrews talks about this. You can just jot this down and listen. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 29, just listen. The writer says, see that you do not refuse him who speaks, and he's talking about, he had just got through talking about what happened when Moses and the people of God stood at the foot of Mount Horeb, and God spoke to them. This is before the Ten Commandments were given. God's intent is that he just speak directly to his people. They couldn't handle it. They said, make it stop, make it stop. You go talk to him. We can't handle this, and the earth shook. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now that's directly from the book of Haggai being quoted in Hebrews chapter 12. The writer of Hebrews is quoting Haggai. He said, I'm going to shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken. The removal of them as the things that are made are created, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. The only thing that can remain are the uncreated things, the eternal things. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire." And so on that day, when that day comes, that final day, God is simply going to speak, and everything that can't handle it is going to be gone just by the speaking voice of God. So he says, tell Zerubbabel this, I'm going to shake heaven and earth. I don't think Zerubbabel's feeling good yet, do you? If he understood what that meant, I think he did. And then he says in verse 22, I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. This is the end of all human authority. That throne represents this. It's it's an overthrow. It's completely turning everything upside down. And it doesn't matter who thinks they're in authority, who thinks they're big, who thinks they're in charge. All of that is destroyed. Because there's only one authority. There's only one and he is lord of lords and king of kings and so he says i'm going to overthrow the throne of kingdoms and then he says in verse 22 i will destroy the strength of the gentile kingdoms this is the end of all national security everything we think protects us and takes care of us this is the end of all of it you're not going to be able to call 911 because there'll be nobody on the other end of the line there'll be nobody to take care of you nobody to help you and uh, it's all going to be annihilated, all those thrones, all those powers. Revelation 6, verse 12. Revelation 6, verse 12. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. That sounds like shaking. And the sun bl- became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand i i don't know about you but i don't think we need to get too comfortable where we are tonight and then also he says in verse 22 i will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them the horses and their riders shall come down everyone by the sword of his brother and this is the end of all military might These were the most powerful figures he could use in that day and time. Uh, The most superior military forces will be defeated by him. Um, A nuclear bomb is not going to handle anything that a God who can create a sun, which is like millions of nuclear bombs going off at once all the time, it's not going to have any effect. So he said all of this in verse 22, but, but what's the point? What is he trying to say? Well, verse 23, verse 23, it begins to be clear. He wants to talk about the day of the Lord, but he wants to say something to Zerubbabel. Look, this day is coming, but let's talk about you. Let's talk about the servant of the Lord in the day of the Lord. When that day comes, where will you be? And, and dear one, this is as true of Zerubbabel, and it's also true of you. Where is the servant of the Lord on the day of the Lord? Well, listen to what God says, and this isn't just for Jerubbabel. In that day, verse 23, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you. I will take you. Now, he's, he's not being shaken. He's being taken. You get it? I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord. Taken instead of shaken. The people in Thessalonica were concerned that the day of the Lord, somehow they had missed it. <laughs> they didn't know their Old Testament very well if they thought they'd missed it. Nobody misses the day of the Lord. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1, listen to what Paul says. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And they shall not escape. But you, brethren, the servant of the Lord and the day of the Lord, but you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as other do's, but let us watch and be sober. Wake up, church. That's what he's saying. Don't get so caught up in what the rest of the world is doing that you are not drawing near your God because one day everybody's attention is going to be focused on him. They'll be taken by surprise. You and I aren't supposed to be taken by surprise. You and I get to walk with him we have fellowship with him we get to abide in him have communion with him all the time yes he comes as a thief in the night as far as the rest of the world is concerned but not as far as we're concerned <coughs> he says it in first thessalonians five verse four but you brethren are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief you know so many times we talk about the day of the lord's coming as a thief in the night thief in the night it's going to take us all by surprise he said here no it's not this day doesn't come so it should overtake you as a thief why because you've been walking with god you walk with him you're talking with him you have fellowship with him when that moment comes you just say well glory it's time i'm going home And so he's taken by God. He said, Zerubbabel, I will take you when that day comes. I'll take you. You're mine. Now, what did he do to warrant that privilege? Did he gain some special favor because he was in David's line? Or is it simply because he did what all people of God should do that when God speaks he said yes Lord the prophet came and gave the word of God he said yes Lord yes Lord yes and that simple yes that simple amen that simple Lord if that's your heart that's what I want I want my heart to beat with your heart and because Zerubbabel did that he said look you don't have to be afraid of the day of the Lord I will take you so he's taken by God, and then the rest of verse 23 shows us how he's restored by God. He says, I will take you, Zerubbabel, and then he says, and will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. Now what is that about? Well, it's easy to believe that all hope was gone for someone like Zerubbabel. He was he was in the, the line of David, and there had been a promise given to that line that everyone descended from David who's... there would be of of that group someone would sit on the throne but what you got to remember at this moment that these are people who had been part of a generation that had sinned so grievously that god had cut them off sent them into captivity and now they've come back what about the promises of god do they still apply to me Zerubbabel had every right to ask that does do the promises of god to my family line as a descendant of david do they still apply to me you see because he knew his grandfather had so grieved the heart of God that his grandfather had been carried off into captivity. His grandfather had served three months and then been carried away. And God said of his grandfather that he was cutting off the descendants of that man and that none of them were going to serve. Uh, Listen to this, Jeremiah 22, verse 24, if you're a note taker. Jeremiah 22, verse 24, as I live, says the Lord, though... Paniah the son of Jehoiakim king of Judah were the signet on my right hand yet I would pluck you off now a signet was a seal and that seal was like a credit card in ancient times if you sealed a, a document with that uh, it it finalized a transaction if you put a seal on something it could, it could be like a check it would open the coffers somewhere else if your credit was good and that signet that seal that that hung around the neck, could be a ring, and it would hung around the neck. That signet was very precious to you. It was very important to you. And God said to his grandfather, though Keniah the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. Well, that's bad enough. But in Jeremiah 36, verse 30, listen to this. Jeremiah 36. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah. This is the grandfather of Zerubbabel. He shall have no one to sit on the throne of David and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat of the day and the frost of the night. I will punish him, his family, and his servants for their iniquity and I will bring on them, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem and on the men of Judah, all the doom that I have pronounced against them but they did not heed. I think Zerubbabel will have every reason to wonder, do the promises of God still apply to me? because of what my grandfather and his generation did. And so God had said of his grandfather, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, that little precious thing, I will cast it away. What does he say to Zerubbabel? I will take you, he says, and I will make you like a signet ring. You get the symbolism now? What was lost has been recovered. What was ruined is being restored. The promises I made to your forefathers and to King David, I am now restoring, and you are in that line. Do you realize Zerubbabel, if you go back and read the lineage of Mary and read the lineage of Joseph, the parents of Jesus, if you read those family trees, Zerubbabel is in both of them. And God is saying, I am restoring you, Zerubbabel, and the promises I made. I'm now keeping to you and to your descendants. What a precious truth. What a precious truth. So God's saying everything's on course. My promises to David are still intact. I am coming as I said I would. I will shake everything in time and replace it with eternal things. But you, Zerubbabel, are going to become a precious eternal thing to me. And that's true of every child of God in this room. One thing you can do. Let me share this scripture and then we're going to land this plane. 1 John 2.28. And this is one that's worth jotting down, y'all. 1 John 2.28. Listen to this scripture, okay? This is the Apostle John. And now little children. Anybody feel like a little child tonight? I hope so and now little children thank you and now little children abide in him stay in him continuously abide in him have fellowship with him have communion with him my little children abide in him that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming abide in him that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming i don't know about you but when i hear that trumpet blast i don't know what i thought was important that day or for that week but it's suddenly not going to be very important anymore you and i could go home sit down in our easy chairs watch a little TV, pop a little popcorn, whatever you do on Sunday night, go see some friends, settle in for the evening, go down to bed. At 12.30 tonight, the loudest sound you've ever heard could go off. And the day of the Lord could begin. And as God speaks everything that's not tied down in eternity, is going to come apart on a subatomic level. Zerubbabel's going to be okay. How about you? How about you?